Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan. Boy, you sound enthusiastic I'm ready. Today. I've been looking forward to the show all week. Woo! Hot damn! Pow! Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just fucking up all over. Why? What's going on? You owe oh, well, the mug thing. Well, I broke your mug, yeah. But also, it is, and it's mug-related problems this morning. I've been spilling. I've been what? spilling. Everything I've touched, I've spilled. Really? Yeah. Come alive to something real uh, on your own and built to spill. <laughs> this is how I'll always feel. Oh, man. It's no big deal. I uh, I don't know why. I spilled a pitcher of water. I spilled uh, I spilled coffee. I burned my hand. From and the coffee? Yes, well, uh, no, because I was holding it over a Bunsen burner. Yes, because of the coffee. Well, I didn't know how, you know, different people heat it up to a different temperature. Well, those, those were, uh, those, those two clauses were connected with a comma, not with a. I see. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, I burned it on the coffee and then. Yeah, yesterday I was driving. See, you seemed surprised that I drive around with coffee mugs in my car. Well, I mean, it it it's it fits. When, periodically, I'll see a, a guy like walking across the parking lot from his car, carrying a cup of a mug, a mug mm-hmm. of coffee with him you know like mm-hmm. he'll get out of his car and it's not a travel mug it's not one of the little starbucks or paper cups you can buy at costco and use at home it's a full-fledged coffee mug and they just sort of stroll around stroll around the parking lot with it i see mm-hmm. this a lot in the mornings before when i would take my kids to school i would walk my boy to uh to school from the you know we have to drive to the school and then we walk up the hill and go into the school and and you always see the parents sort of half awake in their sweatpants, you know, trudging around and, uh, and, and, and they're carrying just a mug mm-hmm. that obviously they're going they're, you know, and, and especially in the wintertime mm-hmm. when it's cold out, mm-hmm. that coffee is going to be ice cold by the end, like mm-hmm. in like two minutes. Mm-hmm. No, you need, a, I mean, you need a thermos. You seem like you seem like the most thermosy guy I've ever met in my whole life. I do have a very good thermos, but well, the reason I end up with a coffee mug is that I'm walking around with a coffee mug and then I absentmindedly walk out the door and then I walk over and get in my car and then I'm driving and I look down and I go, oh shit, got a coffee mug. And then when I'm finished, I huck it in the back seat and then pretty soon I'm driving around and you got 10 it, mugs rolling around back. Yeah. There. And they're rolling around and they're clanking on each other. And I'm like, ah, oh, I got to clean out those mugs. And, uh, yesterday I went around a corner kind of fast mm. and, uh, you know, and the mugs are clanking. It, it sounds like uh, sounds like one of the old sort of guys that would take his cart around and sell pots and pans. A uh, a tinker. I sound like a tinker. Yeah. And um, and then I pulled up where I was going, and I went and opened the back door to get my guitar, mm-hmm. and the mug had fallen into oh. the footwell, and so when I opened the door, out it spilled. And broke, and uh, I was devastated. I don't, that, I don't blame you. That little five by five mug had become a had become a real favorite. Well, I told you after you sent it to me. I said I think that might have been the last <laughs> the last known mug, but I found a few more because I started oh, looking right. before the show. I need to get the shipping box for it, but uh, I will send you a replacement. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank yeah. you. Dan. Don't worry. Yeah. Yep. Spilling. <clears throat> Something's been going on the last week or so where the weather's really nice. I'm 
I'm all charged up. I don't have anything to do. Ready to get cooking, ready to get cracking. Yeah. And then I just sleep till 1030. Hmm. And you can't really get cracking when you sleep till 1030. Well, you're you're up late, though, at night. I am up late. I am up late. But not uh, up late to no good purpose. How late? Two, oh, pretty two. late. Well, maybe push it. Push it to three. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not up all the way to 4:30 which is you know when that happens it's time for a reset but up till 3 it seems right but the problem is I'm not I'm up to no good right now. Well what are you doing when you're doing stuff at 2 or 3 in the morning? Is it is it home alone? Is it book time? Are you watching old movies? Are you watching a documentary on, you know, Nazi and the the occult or something or what are you are you out at a at a concert playing or watching a friend or what are you, what are you doing? I missed a birthday party last night that I should have gone to. No, I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm never watching something. I'm never you know, hardly hardly ever. So at once in a blue moon, I'll get in the bathtub and I'll put the laptop on the little table <laughs> that I keep next to the bathtub, <laughs> and uh, I'll watch something that Netflix suggests, which is always wrong. The other day, I watched some movie with um, with Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. All Plus, of them? No, no. The Funky Bunch consisted of Andre 3000 and some other uh, people. Yeah. And I, uh, it was dumb. I knew it was dumb when I clicked on it. But every once in a while, you just, or at least I just kind of want to see a movie. I don't, I don't watch a lot of movies. No, I'm usually up playing the guitar or um, <clears throat> BB stacking. I do a lot of BB stacking. I do a lot of sorting of rusty screws and washers. So I had to look this up. Stacking BBs to engage in pointless and or unrewarding tasks and is often maddening and futile by nature. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's I feel like I pick of... up a new term, K-hole, stacking <laughs> BBs. Yeah, stacking BBs is one of the great pleasures of my life. The the pointless uh, moving of things around and where they were and where they end up, neither thing is important. Um, you know, every once in a while, I have a lot of boxes full of papers, unsorted papers, and every once in a while, I'll pull out a, you know, a, a, like a legal box full of papers, <laughs> and I'll proceed to sort them according to some criteria. Uh-huh. Oh, these are these are old bills that I want to save because <clears throat> they're documents of a an era, and these are. Very important other documents, school-related documents, or right. or um, childhood whatnots. I'll stack them in various piles. I'll work on it for a while, maybe for a week, and then it'll sit where I leave it for two months, and then eventually all the things will be gathered up and put back in the same box. Sorted, slightly sorted, but left to a future self, left for future John, (laughs) to once again sort one day when I've I've forgotten having ever touched it. Right. Eight years from now, I'll pull that box out and be like, I got to go through this box. I'll sort everything. Be like, hmm, it seems like it's been sorted, pre-sorted. And yeah, who knows what the end result is. I, when I, when my dad finally died, I would, I would pick up various boxes or like the <clears throat> top of his coffee table, you know, right. I would kind of start going through it. And it's like, 
Here's a phone bill from two days ago. Here's a phone bill from a month and a half ago. Right. Here's uh, a copy of the Naval Aviator magazine. <laughs> oh, here's his passport from 1956. Now that's that you got to keep. And it's like, well, not only do you have to keep it, but why the hell is it on the coffee table mixed in with a <laughs> bunch of contemporary bills? Right. <clears throat> and then you're sorting through and it's just like, oh, here's a form letter. Here's some junk mail. Here's a half filled out uh, sweepstakes entry. Oh, here's his uh, his flight record. His fl- you know his pilot's flight book from World War II. It's like, Dad, you know some of these things are important, at least important to me. And some of these things are total garbage, and they're indiscriminately mixed. And that's a thing that just drives me absolutely up the wall. But but I'm no better because I think my, you know, my uh, the 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 inheritors of my estate which will be 40 boxes full of undifferentiated papers. We'll flip through there and they're like, here's a bill from 1984. Why did he keep this? Ugh. Are you just running sort of a long con on your, you know, the next generation of Rodericks out there because you want them to wonder and you want to sort of leave this legacy of mystery. Like what was hmm. he doing at four in the morning? The problem is I cannot imagine anyone taking that interest like I take that interest but when I look at my daughter and her personality she has not inherited my personality and that's kind of astonishing to me because I thought that my personality was whatever whatever genes encoded for it right I felt like it was probably going to be pretty dominant but it turns out now she does remind me of you though, in many ways. Well, uh, that's true of a lot of, uh, that's true. Most people say that she looks like me and she sort of has a, has a, a, a kind of effusiveness. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But when, you know, when we look at deep into one another's eyes, she goes, mm, Nope. Like there's a, there's a clear sort of, there's a clear growing understanding that she inherited a different style of personality. Oh yeah. And so that's going to be, that's going to be interesting as we get older. Cause I'm, you know, I'm my stated goal is to, to accept, accept her personality. And of course that's not in the nature of my personality. So we'll, we'll, we'll see, yeah. but I can almost guarantee that, uh, on the day I die, she inherits 50 boxes of undifferentiated <laughs> papers and they go into a dumpster, including my passport from 1956. No, you know, no. She'd be like, why would I keep this? It's from 1956, Chuck. Because those people that have really nice, those nice empty homes that you see, like those yeah. seaside homes where, where the only thing on the coffee table is a conch shell. Like there's nothing in the house. You know what I mean? Like people whose, whose front yards are sort of, rocks mm-hmm. yeah uh you and you you walk through their house and you look for you look for a family picture or something that personalizes the place and you just sort of you, there's none they have to those houses have to be clean somehow and it's that they don't have their father's passports mm-hmm. you know what i mean because yeah. your father's passports take up the space in the closet where these people i guess are putting their family pictures because my coffee table, let me tell you, Dan, does not have a single conch shell on it. No, I wouldn't imagine you as a conch shell kind of guy. 
But think about it. you go to Ikea and they're like, here's what your house can look like. And the shelves, like each shelf has one ch- tchotchke. Uh-huh. Like here's an interesting tchotchke. I went to somebody's house one time and they had uh, on the coffee table, they had a, they had a book of Hegel written in German. And I was like, whoa, these people are way, way heavier than I thought they were. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the person I was visiting came and sat down in the chair and I, I was like, I can't help but notice that you read Hegel in German. Uh, let's talk about that. And they were like, huh? Oh, uh, the, the decorator oh, put man. that there. I was like, the decorator put that there. And I'm guessing the decorator didn't know what it was either. Right. And then all of a sudden I was, I felt very alone and I looked out the window for a while. Anytime, anytime you send me something, Mm. you, it's like a little, it's a a little window and I, I'm not sure if it's intentional or not, but it's a little window into your world and it's even better than I imagined that it would be. So for example, on the 16th of June, in the afternoon, you sent me a photo. You were using the 5x5 mug yeah. to consume a beverage. Looks like coffee with cream in it, if I had to guess. Mm-hmm. It's on a coaster. The coaster is ceramic. It looks like a hand-painted coat of arms of some kind. That's interesting. Like, what is, what is that? You know, then there's a stack of books. The books all look old. There's a, behind it, there's a stack of magazines, lots of magazines. You've got your, a pair of what looks like aviator style sunglasses with the curved thing that go around the back of the ear. Yeah. And then inside of the glasses, the glasses are sort of laid flat on the top of the stack of magazines and inside of it there is what looks like a pink ball not the solid rubber balls but it looks like the kind that would be like filled with air or something mm-hmm. it's, it's just inside the glasses and then to the right behind it it looks like is that a piano that's back there and then mm-hmm. further on the on the wood uh, wooden coffee table you can see a box that looks like it has uh, Asian style uh, whatever as is that a set of of those Benoit balls that you rotate <laughs> in your hand for perhaps mm-hmm. you know with the little cla- Asian style clasp on it and then at what looks like under the coffee table there's like a, like a boot perhaps a, a a a boot that just one just one boot by itself <laughs> there and then in the distance beyond into the light of the next room I can see more shelves with more and one of them has just books, not, it's not a bookshelf, it's just some kind of, sh- and the books are just stacked to the equal height of the other white shelf next to it. It's, it's tells such a story. Mm. And there's so, I have so many questions. <laughs> that mm-hmm. I want to, I want to post this in the show notes, but I don't know if, would you be comfortable with that? <laughs> sure, Is it give too much fine. away? No, no. What can they, what can anybody do to me? Uh, yeah, it just, I mean, it, that yeah. picture tells such a story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I imagine every, and there's something, I can't tell what it is, but behind the 5x5 five five mug, there's some kind of little can. Is it is it boot polish? I think it says the word boot on it. 
all these all these speculations could in fact be true i i'm not sitting in that room i have no idea right you don't even know what's in there oh i definitely know what i definitely know <laughs> what's in there you know I, I i'm one of those people that if you say where is you know where, where's your father's passport let's set that as an example yeah i'll walk right to it oh yeah i could i couldn't direct you to it but i you know i feel i feel where it is i know where it is uh yeah all those you know you're close you're close on a lot of those things um i think the white bookshelf actually is just books that have been uh that have been endorsed to me by the author oh so you've got a special shelf just for that that's the shelf of of like books by friends or books by people that you know that i went to their book signing uh when i was with George R. R. Martin a couple of years ago with Hodgman down in uh, New Mexico or Arizona, where the hell he lives. Uh, you know, I was like, Hey, I want, why don't you, why don't you sign all the, all these books for me? Cause you, you're a billionaire and you got all these books lying around mm-hmm. and everybody was like, Oh, low, that's low to ask him to, give you these books first of all but then sign them all oh and i was like i spent two days with the guy yeah come on i know he's like a freewheeling guy and he did he was like oh no problem and signed all you know all the books like to john i was like oh that's pretty cool now i've got that and all you scaredy pants don't have it so screw you and did he have a problem with it not at all he no. was thrilled yeah i mean we're, we were at the moment standing in what amounted to an air force missile silo full of George R. R. Martin books. Wow. It's not like, it's not like I was standing in his living room and saying, Hey, these original copies of your <laughs> books, why don't you give them to me? Yeah. It was like a warehouse full of his books. It's like, yeah, Hey, here's a, here's an idea. If it hadn't occurred to you, why don't you sign them? I feel hand, like I, hand them over. I, I feel like you could pull that off though. In a way, maybe not a lot of people could. Well, I don't know about that whole like shush. Although I do, I I do. I, I sometimes I shush people like, don't do that. Don't ask that. You know, I think I think if there's a, there's a lot of tendency with musicians to ask favors of them, like, hey, will you play my birthday party? Or hey, will you, you know, like favors that are above and beyond. Just like, can I get a picture with you? But like now, I finally got Ben Gibbard. I can ask him if he'll play you know, my sister's wedding. It's like, shh, that's a no, lot of work. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's not, he's not going to do that. Don't, don't mess around. So I, I do do that. And maybe, uh, maybe asking George R. R. Martin for, for signed copies of his, I mean, he, I don't think he gave me the whole oeuvre, but he gave me a couple of books that aren't part of the game of Thrones saga. Yeah. Other ones. Anyway, they're nice. So that little shelf, you know, if I if I want to go through it and like read the title page or read the you know the cover page of those books, there's always something nice written in them, and that makes me feel glad. And I don't think every book in there qualifies, but that's the point of that bookshelf. That's the like signed books shelf. Mm-hmm. And there might have been some boot polish on the table. I was polishing my boots, and those coasters are little tiles that have. Uh, the coats of arms of different, um, like the coats of arms of different, I think like 
military organizations within the Czech Republic. Of course. So like, you know, different brigades or different um, divisions of the, of not the current Czech army, but the Habsburg era Czech. Well, that was the good one. I'll tell you, they had good <laughs> emblems, but I'm, but I don't quote me on that, but I think that's what those are. Mm. Even though I spilled this coffee on myself earlier, now I've, I think we've made up. I'm no longer mad at this coffee. Okay. And it seems to be behaving tamely. And so we're friends again. Mm. Nice. Do you have like a favorite mug? Mm-mm. No, no, I'm, you know, I'm one of those, um, mixed mugs, mixed plates people. All my, I don't have two of the same sort of plate or cup. (laughs) I'm not surprised. They're all, they're all, each one is exactly how I imagine it, but I am not one of those crazy hippies that has mixed silverware, you know, like you go into people's houses and you go into their silverware drawer Mm -hmm. And it's just every kind of spoon. Do you have all one, one set? Yeah. I like early on in having my own house. Like first I got a set. They, I didn't like them very much. Then I found a better set. So I ixnade the first set. And then the second set also had its problems. And then I found the third set, which, you know, they had the weight and they had the, they had a softness to them, a roundness. I don't like silverware. That's too, Teutonic. I want silverware that's a little more Italian. Okay. So I found some, and then I've 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 held fast with those. I see other silverware sets and kind of covet them, and then I'm like, mm, is that really going to be better? Is that going to be better than what I have? And I leave, uh, and I leave it, leave it behind. But you know, I've been to people's houses where their silverware drawer is just pure chaos, but they're plates and cups all match. Yeah. And I just feel like that's the, you're headed, you're, you have it exactly opposite. You have it exactly upside down. Some people will have multiple sets. Cause you know, like one's the everyday set. One's like the nice set. Do you allow for that? Or is it one universal set for every situation? No, I allow for that. Or let's say you have a, let's say you have a, a, a brother who keeps kosher. Um, right. You got to keep a separate, you know, you keep the, keep the little kosher food uh, thing over here in the cupboard. Um, you keep a kosher household, right? Uh, not the entire house, but I do, you know, I always set a, a plate for Elijah. Yep. And I always keep, uh, you know, I keep some stuff around that hasn't been polluted. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm not somebody that has a lot of formal gatherings, so I don't have my like Thanksgiving silverware. And this is the this is the crazy thing, Dan. Think about this. There are people that have no tchotchkes on their shelves, but they make room in their house for more than one set of silverware that they hardly ever use. Yeah. That seems kind of bananas. Like why would you why would you utilize this the this whole like cupboard, this china cupboard? Yeah. For silverware you use once a year, but not take advantage of all the wonderful like shelves you've bolted to the walls to collect salt shakers or whatever it is old people do salt shakers or ceramic pistols or whatever you're into china pigs china pigs china pigs 
China pigs or uh, God, I saw one. Oh, I, I went to the state fair last year. And one of the things at the Washington state fair, and I'm sure this is true of state fairs everywhere is that you can display your collections. <laughs> and I talked to Merlin a little bit about a snare drum collection that I saw that really was world-class, but there was also someone who was displaying their Winnie the Pooh collection. <laughs> and the Winnie the Pooh collection was incredible. Yeah. Incredible in that it was like it represented to me like the second plane of hell. You know what I mean? Like everybody's always like, oh, it's the sixth plane of hell. But there's got to be something up there. The first and second planes of hell where you're like, yeah, we're not all the way down at the bottom of hell. Just sort of skimming along the top of it here, like you know, along the along the waves of hell, or like snorkeling within hell. <laughs> and uh, it was so many Winnie the Poohs of so many different sizes, giant Winnie the Pooh bigger than me, <laughs> down to Winnie the Poohs that you could fit inside of an acorn. Most all of them stuffed animals. And they had they had this thing displayed where the Winnie the Poohs were so crammed in against each other that it was essentially like a fuzzy wall of poo. And a wall, Dan, I'm talking about like 15 feet high oh my God. By, by 25 feet across. And there's no way that they display their poos at home in this concentrated fashion. So that means that either they have a shipping container out back but I don't think they do because they treasure these uh, Winnie the Poohs. And so it means that every everywhere in their house, every flat surface is going to have to be covered with Winnie the Poohs. And I get it. I get the, I get the fact that you're like, this is the thing that I'm going to collect. And now I'm going to get them. And fortunately, if you, fortunately for you, if you're going to have a Winnie the Pooh collection, Winnie the Poohs are not scarce. That's something right. you could definitely go and you could find that. You could set out and say, today, I'm going to get myself a Winnie the Pooh plushie and I'm not coming home until I get one. And you would be you home. Would, you'd be home in 20 minutes. You'd be home before dinner, right? Yeah. You could say to yourself today, I'm going to start a Winnie the Pooh collection. I'm going to see how many Winnie the Poohs I can get by the end of the day. And I think you'd have a pretty, I mean, that's a great scavenger hunt. I think you would have a pretty formidable collection. So this person, I mean, it's one thing to say, like, I'm going to collect scissors from the 19th century. <laughs> like, that's a killer collection. And wow, like, where do you begin? First, you begin by trying to learn how to tell the difference between scissors. And I think you'd end up asking yourself, where, where was the first scissor? Who, where, where did the scissor originate? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we realized like the stirrup uh, was a tremendous advance in the development of like wide ranging armies, right? Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, they were able to make their, their big sweeps across the world because, you know, partly and maybe largely the result of the stirrup. And prior to the stirrup, everybody was just riding around like Lady Godiva. <laughs> And then the stirrup comes along and suddenly they're like, yeah, <laughs> and they're lopping off everybody's heads. And they're like the, they're like the uh, call Drago. Right. 
or whatever of, of the, of the actual world. But the scissors, one day there was no scissors. The next day there were scissors. Someone invented them. Where did that come? Where I, now I'm curious, but let's say you wanted to start that collection. Boy, you'd have your work cut out for you. It'd be fun. Winnie the Poohs, it would be the other kind of thing where it would become an obsession. Like I have to get every Winnie the Pooh I see and I see six a day. See, I don't understand that. Like that fixation on one particular kind of thing where people like get really into a specific object that they want to collect in every permutation that it exists in. I do get the idea of having like a complete set, you know, like if you want to get you know, every Harry Potter Lego minifig that comes out. Like somehow I understand that for the sake of like completeness. That was quite a combination of words. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the world I live in, John. Okay. Okay. But, uh, but I don't really understand the drive to get, well, you know, just, just Winnie the Pooh. That's the one thing. Somehow this speaks to me in a way that nothing else speaks to me. Winnie the Pooh. I need that. Mm-hmm. I need all of that. I don't, you know, I don't have enough. Mm-hmm. No matter how much I got, I, I need more. I, f- I feel like the impulse <clears throat> after a while is, well, like the, somebody else at the state fair was collecting Duran Duran memorabilia and they had a tremendous collection of Duran Duran memorabilia. I commented on it online and then that comment got to the person that collected the Duran Duran memorabilia because mm-hmm. my comment was, I've got more shit than this guy uh, about Duran Duran. And he, well, I didn't, of course, but I had some things he didn't have. <clears throat> and what, if, what I think made me mad was he had a bunch of stuff from Duran Duran's <clears throat> 1997 tour. And it's like, well, yeah, but. If you're going to put your collection on display, I want to see the earliest stuff. I want to see all the early stuff. I don't want, nobody cares about 1997. Mm-mm. This guy contacted me and he was like, oh, I got way more than I showed at the fair. Do you want to come see it? And a part of me really did. I think the largest part of me sort of did, sort of, mm-hmm. sort of pretty much yes, did. But then there was just a teeny bit of me that was like, Hmm. I'm going to be in, I'm going to be in the, the warehouse space that represents the inside of this person's Uh Duran Duran fixation. And I don't know. I feel like I've been, I've been similar places before. I wasn't sure. Let's just say that Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure enough about wanting to see it that I actually like took the leap. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the Winnie the Pooh thing after a while becomes in a way an element of war because you are amassing an arsenal that you, that the entire point of it is to defeat all comers. You have more than anyone else. That's right. Oh, you think you've got a Winnie the Pooh collection? Boom. Wow. Here's a Winnie the Pooh collection. There's got to be an element to that because you know, I get it. I get it. You see, you're walking through life. Oh, Winnie the Pooh. There he is. I see him. I collect him. Must have. But there's so much shite out there. Like, like if you're collecting all the Duran Duran stuff from 19, from let's say from 1981 to 1985, even though there's 
millions of pieces of it. Most of it is duplicated. And so you could conceivably over the course of a lifetime, collect one of each thing that you could find. Sure. And there'd be bootleg stuff. I mean, you'd have, you'd find a lot of interesting stuff, fan art and whatnot, but there's, there's never an end to Winnie the Pooh because they're making new stuff every day. They have branded every possible thing you could with, I'm sure you could get little pig, uh, little pig salt shakers that also had Winnie the Poohs on them. Although that would be kind of cool. Little ceramic pig <laughs> salt and pepper shakers, but that had Winnie the Poohs on them. That seems like one of those things like where the, where the, a city decides to put big fiberglass animals all over the town. Oh Did yeah. Did you have that in yeah. Austin? Yeah, we have, uh, we've got different ones here. There's, there were in Orlando, there were cows, I think. And here we have these sort of gorillas. Yeah. We have there. giant, giant pigs. I mean, giant sows. Uh, and they're all hand painted by various people and the painting never takes into consideration that it's on a pig. You know, the artist somehow never references the fact that like I'm painting a pig. No, they're like, I'm an artist. I've been contracted to paint this paint my, my work upon this uneven surface. Right. It's like, it's a, it's a giant pig. Like, like don't do a painting on the thing. Paint the pig. You got to paint the pig. You know what I mean? What you're saying is that, that if, if you just had a plain canvas, they would approach that the same way that they are approaching the pig. That's what it seems like. Not, se- not saying this is like, this is a pig. I should paint the pig and acknowledge that it's a pig. Yeah. Put lipstick on the pig. Right. It's, you know, like acknowledge the pig is what I'm saying. And all over town, you see these pigs that are just painted like uh, William Morris wallpaper. And if, if somebody did that, I would think that would be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But they're not. They're just like, I did a painting. I did a painting on a pig, on a pig instead of I painted a pig. Mm. So, but it, it would feel like that, right? If you had a little, if you had a little salt shaker that just had a Winnie the Pooh on it, it would be like, this has, <laughs> this has nothing to do with <laughs> the fact that it's a pig. Or the fact that it's a salt shaker, but like it's hand painted, a hand painted Winnie the Pooh. I just, I, some, suddenly I'm delighted by that idea. If you were going to have a Winnie the Pooh collection, I would say it would be incongruous Winnie the Poohs. Well, I think it's time that we uh, take a quick break to thank our sponsor. It's Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon, their slogan is that they're, Mac Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now but i i actually think there may be some truth to this they believe in smart design premium fabrics and simple shopping and that's that's the way they work they make the website incredibly straightforward it's super easy to get in there and find the they got underwear they got socks they got shirts they got undershirts hoodies and sweatpants and that's it keep it simple and all of their products they're naturally antimicrobial means they eliminate odor and they want you to be comfortable. If you don't like the first pair that you get, you can keep it and they'll still refund you. No questions asked. So this it says a lot, I think, about them. Mm-hmm. And they've got, John, they have this special kind of underwear that has uh, silver in, inside of it. And they, you've mentioned before, I think, that that's your now is become your preferred type of underwear. They're my lucky underwear, the silver ones. <laughs> it's already become 
moved into the lucky spot? I put I put them uh, I put them on when I need that extra layer of chain mail. <laughs> I you know I don't think that they would guard me against a knife uh, thrust, but into into I, the uh, knife thrust to the groin. Yeah, but I, I feel like they're not quite that level of chain mail. Huh. Chain mail, but they are psychological chain mail, <laughs> and I think that's a big part of not getting knifed. Right, is that you project <laughs> that confidence? Yes. of like I'm wearing silver underpants. So what do you got? Oh, all you have is a knife. You brought a knife to a silver underpants fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's, I don't know if there's a lot of places making silver thread mail. No, 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 no. I don't think there are. I think, I think that silver would be probably a bad metal to use in actual chain mail <laughs> because it's, a, it's fairly soft and really the best chain mail material is mithril as we know. Oh, right. And if they made mithril underpants at Mac Weldon, I would absolutely buy a pair. But I had an interesting experience the other day, Dan, with my <laughs> Mac Weldon underpants. That's so. Which is that uh, my girlfriend uh, was your millennial from, girlfriend. My millennial girlfriend was visiting from California, and because we, she and I, live a very flexible, like devil may care, two pistols in the air kind of lifestyle. Uh-huh. Uh huh. She arrived. And then it was like, oh, you know, you were going to fly home, but why don't you stay? Uh, and I think maybe she got on the airplanes fairly spontaneously, like, hey, what are you doing today? Why don't you get on an airplane? And so after, uh, after a day, she was like, oh, shit, I only have one pair of underwear. <laughs> I just have the underwear that I'm wearing. What do I do? Right. And I was like, well, you can wear some of my underwear. And she said, I am a much smaller person than you. Right. This will not. This this cannot work, mm -hmm. right? She is a hundred pound person and I am a 240 pound person. Right. And I was like, mm, I don't know. Try those Mac Weldon underwears. And she put them on and they worked <laughs> right. Because they are made, they're very, uh, you know, they're very, uh, like stretchy and form fitting on me. I would also describe them as my sexy underwear. Because they're not, they don't, they don't flap around. Yeah. But to both of our total astonishment, these underpants fit her. And she was a little bit like, what the hell? Why do these underpants fit me? <laughs> this is, this bodes ill. Am I like, do I weigh 240 pounds? And I was like, shush, 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 shush. They fit you because somehow, apparently, a pair of large Mack Weldon underwear is essentially a unisex fit any one pair of underpants. <laughs> and she wore them on the airplane, wore them home. As far as I know, they're still, they're still in circulation with her. Although I think they are, they would maybe function as the opposite of, um, like the empowering underwear. I'm afraid that whenever she would consider putting them on, she would go, ugh, I can't wear my boyfriend's right, underwear. Right, right. But I was, I was very impressed and you know, and they look great on her. Uh, and so I recommend Mac Weldon, not just to our male listeners, but to our female listeners, because I think probably a small pair of, uh, Mac Weldon's would fit her like a glove and a large pair or an extra large pair. Like they really work for everybody. I gotta say and there is something kind of hot about a woman wearing like like in the sort of men's style briefs. Uh -huh. You know what I'm talking about? 
Well, I do. And you got to live. You got to live it. You're living the dream. What's happening in the world is that, uh, yeah, that is, that is a sexy thing. And so now they're making, uh, women's underwear that look like like it. Right. But that screws it up. It's like you, your girlfriend used to steal your Levi's and there was a certain look of your girlfriend or your sister wearing your Levi's. That Mm. was a kind of thing like, Hey, hey, that is a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of other messages and levels to it. But then as soon as you make jeans that are actually called like your boyfriend's jeans, which I'm sure they have, because I know I was reading a catalog at one point and it's, and some shirt was called like your boyfriend's shirt. Right. And I just felt Boy, like boyfriend jeans. Yeah. Why don't you just wear your boyfriend's jeans or your boyfriend's shirt? You know, it doesn't have to be a special thing that you pay $200 for. So don't get girl underpants that look like boy underpants. Wear boy underpants. Mm-hmm. Prob- double problem solved. <laughs> so uh, go to Mac Weldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N, and you will get 20% off. If you use the uh, promo code roadwork, one word roadwork, roadwork at MacWeldon.com and get yourself and your, uh, your lady friend, some uh, men's underwear. Yeah. Or, I mean, obviously they are gender neutral underpants is what I'm actually saying. Anyone can wear them. Anyone can wear them. Anyone will look good in these, uh, underpants, no matter how, uh, big or small your booty is. Do you have a collection of anything? I mean, my whole life is a collection of garbage. But not like one thing. Like you don't have a thing that like speaks to you. It's like, this is the, this is my thing. No. No. I mean, my thing is, is 100 incomplete garbage collections. Like the uh, last week or the week before Jesse Thorne and his somewhat exasperated, exasperating fashion blog put this on have you ever been to put this on i have i've watched all their videos as well i i don't i don't often agree with the things (laughs) that are said on that show uh, but i enjoy the difference of opinion and perspective and i acknowledge that style and fashion are both very opinionated and subjective and i enjoy very much the debate Mm -hmm. one of the great things about jesse thorne is that uh, although he trades almost exclusively in things that are open to debate, right? Uh, Jesse will brook no debate because he he has he has all the information already, and his blog uh, put this on is exasperating for that reason. Because you're like, what? No, <laughs> no. What you just said is that's uh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, but it's said with such with such conviction a, and conviction, right? Yeah. But, are you saying though that that? I mean, do you agree with a lot of the things that are? No. No. But going to thrift stores with Jesse is very fun. Oh, gosh. That would be that would be a fun Saturday. It's super fun because he has a whole set of he has a knowledge set about what he's looking for and finding in thrift stores that, it, you know, that is um, adjacent to mine. There's there is some oh, overlap, yeah. but not a ton. I know about some things. He knows about some things. And, you know, walking around, he'll, he'll pick and pull all these little items where he's like, look at this. This is blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wow, it is. I never would have seen that. He did a thing one time we were walking through and he pulled up a, he pulled up a shirt and he was like, 
rub the buttons of this shirt on your lips. It's like, what? No, why would I do that? And he's like, just do it. Just touch the buttons to your lips. And I did. And they were cold. He was like, see how they're cold? Yes, I do. Well, that's because they're real mother of pearl. I was like, never would have known that. Never would have thought to lick the buttons. Yeah. But that's a little thing that he picked up along the way and he's got all these skills. But he had a thing the other day where he was, where put this on was doing like, show us your shoes and we'll reblog <laughs> your shoes. It's shoe, it's shoe Wednesday or whatever. Yeah. And I just didn't know where to start because I've got 30 pairs of shoes. See, really? And is it a collection? That is a collection. Because for in 2016 for a man, that is a collection. But you know, I I ha- I wear them all. They're, they're it's not it's like they they all fit me. So so right away it's well. See, certain things qualify as a collection. Certain things I would say are absolutely not a collection. Like for example, my my boy is obsessed at a whole new level. He's eight. A whole new level of obsession than I've seen in him before with Futurama and he's he's watching all the episodes multiple many many multiple times I thought he was into Adventure Time you know forget that this is this is a brand new level he knows he knows the different versions of the theme songs that were used in the different series because they re you know the the show would sort of stop and go on hiatus and come back and the toys for it are impossible to find anywhere. And so I, on, on uh, the show I do with Merlin, I asked the audience, I said, if, if anybody out there like has any of these toys, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll buy them off of you. If you want to sell them, if you just don't want to get rid of them, send, send them, I'll pay for shipping, whatever. And, uh, and when he gets these things and he, he loves vintage, you know, vintage toys, he just loves them that he has several shelves set aside where he sets them up and he can. And so for him, this is very much a collection. And I sure wish that I'd saved all my toys from when I was a kid, you know, like I was moving to college and my mom's like, what are you going to do with all your old toys, Andy? And I'm like, well, you know, just get rid of them. I don't want them anymore. Kid stuff. What do I want that crap for? Not thinking one day I'll have a son who will like all this exactly the same stuff that I liked. Mm. so that was dumb but now so now i'm trying to kind of get more of these for him but he is absolutely has the collector's mind he he treats the toys with the utmost of care he sets them up he he will so you know he'll just sit and look at look at the toy or hold the toy like we got this one my friend travis sent sent us a um like the talking bender toy so it's larger than the regular figure right but it's and it has batteries in it and talking bender doesn't say does it say dirty alcoholic thing yeah like bite my shiny metal ass all that stuff Mm -hmm. and uh so but he loves this thing and he treats it with a great degree of reverence that i you know i certainly did not teach him this i didn't ever encourage or discourage him to from collecting things from keeping things uh, this is just something that he himself just got into and started to do and started to want. And I never really had a collection of anything, you know. 
I never, I mean, with maybe the exception being like comics where I would read it and then I would put it in the board, board bag and put it in the box. But that was more because I was interested in the storylines. I was interested in what was going on. And of course I had to go buy it and then I would keep it because there was this theory that these things would increase in value and some of them did. So I've gotten rid of almost all of my comic book collection. I've only saved a few things. But I don't really have that gene, you know, that makes me want to collect things or get a complete set of something or I don't know. Like, and I, I'm much more sort of like I get into the the tinkering of things. Like I was the kid that took everything apart, you know, like if we oh, got yeah. a radio, I would be like, oh, this is really cool. I wonder how you know deep into this I can get. And I don't know, but I think I, I missed out on that whole like collecting gene. Well, I, I made a joke the other day to somebody, I forget who, about the <clears throat> the Luke Skywalker, the original Luke Skywalker with the, I forget which color his lightsaber was, but with the, you remember the lightsabers had little thinner portions above the regular lightsaber? Yeah. Like the lightsaber came out and then it had like a weird tail on it somehow. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. And almost every kid in the world, including me, the first thing you did was bite that little thing off, even though it was about half the length of the lightsaber, because it looked stupid. Yeah. And so you bit it off, but then the lightsaber seemed short. So it was like a fairly common problem. You bite that little thing off. But everybody did, because you didn't didn't keep it. No. It it looked, it kind of had a little, like a cheap, it would look cheap. It made it look cheap. It made it look cheap. That's precisely right. Um, this is just modding, modding your your toy. Yeah, and I think day. what it was meant to what it was meant to symbolize was that the lightsaber tapers to the end, <laughs> but it wasn't a tapering. It no. just kind of went up, and then all of a sudden it was smaller. <laughs> but I think now I'm don't, I, and I'm sure I'll, I'm going to get uh, angry letters or at least letters full of information. But uh, the the figurines that haven't had the little dingus bitten off. Yes. Those are much more valuable, much more valuable. And then the color of the lightsaber, I think also matters in the valuation. And I made a, I made a joke or a reference about that to someone. And that person, I don't know who it is. It's one of these people that we know, but they said kind of like under their breath, I have one of those. Oh, an an unadulterated lightsaber. And I was like, you what? It was like, Yes, I have the, I have the yellow lightsaber with the, that's unclipped. And I was like, did you buy it at a con or something? And he was like, no, I've had it since, since the time I got it in 1977. Oh man. And I was just like, I, I wish to God I could remember which dingaling friend it was that had this. It wasn't that long ago that this came up in conversation. But, you know, this is the thing. Like, there are collectors and there are collectors. He, I don't think he has an enormous Star Wars collection, but he recognizes the value of this. And he obviously did from the beginning. He cherished it so much that he didn't bite the dingus. <laughs> and then he didn't lose the, he didn't lose any of the stuff and he never lost it along the way. So, and nobody ever stole it. Like, he guarded it. Pretty I cool. I just don't understand. Like, like, my friend Travis, who sent my boy this uh, this talking bender, it was in the box. It was in the original box. Talking bender in the box. In the box, and it was sealed up. And it even had like when we opened the 
uh, when we opened it up, my son's like, well, you know that like, I don't think we should put the batteries in because he, he understands that you put, you put batteries in and you, what happens is, you know, they, they, over time, they leak and they ruin the toy. Ruin the toy. I think just taking it out of the box, you've already done a crime against humanity. Well, I, so this is, this is the debate. It's sitting here in the box and I'm like, I'm like, do you want to, do you want to take it out of the box or not? <laughs> and he's he immediately starts going into an OCD mm. loop of you know he under he understands exactly uh he understands exactly what it means to take it out of the box too. Yeah. He knows he knows that taking it out of the box essentially destroys a tremendous amount of the value of of this it's like driving the new car off the lot, Dan. Yeah, that's right. There's a third of the value. Well, he's very precocious in terms of having a collector mindset. I do not do that. I one time, many, many, he, many well, of course he took it out of the box. Well, of course he did. Cause he's a kid. He wants to play with it. Yeah. One time, many years ago, I found in the box, a, um, a, a plushy puppet of cherry the stuffed chair from the Pee Wee Herman show. Of course. Who doesn't know what cherry? Cherry. Cherry the chair. Yeah. And uh, this was, I think I found this thing in about 1991, and I I had that momentary reflex Mm -hmm. of like, well, this thing is pristine in the box. Yeah. One day, there will be so few cherries left in their original boxes that I'll retire. I'll retire on the strength of this one collector item Mm -hmm. and i kept it around for about a week but it was not a small thing it was the size of a microwave oven and then one day i was like this is ridiculous i'm not gonna carry this stupid thing around with me for the next 25 years and i took it out of the box and then my friends and i made it do terrible terrible things Uh until it was until it was awful soiled Uh uh-huh and then it went into the, I think it didn't even go into the garbage. I think it just went out and I, it was one of those things that uh, you live in a suburban setting. Is that right? Yes, that's accurate. When you live in an urban setting, um, the roads, the sidewalks and streets are, are like, uh, are streams, tributaries of the, of the major, the rivers that are the arterials. And, my policy was always take the thing that you no longer want and put it out next to the stream and it will wash down the stream. And I used to do this with socks. I would have all these socks that were like done. They were fried (laughs) and I wanted to get rid of the socks, but you know, you got eight pairs of fried socks and I just throw them in the garbage. That seems wasteful. I didn't know at the time that you could recycle fabric, right? Maybe hadn't been publicized. But I would take the fried socks and I would go and I'd put them on top of my mailbox out on the sidewalk. And those socks would be gone. It was like a a watched pot never boils Mm -hmm. and a watched, a watched sock never goes down the stream. If you stood there, if you sat on your porch with a cigarette and a cup of coffee and waited for the socks to go, the, the socks would be there all day. But as soon as you turn your back, as soon as you go back into the house to refill your cup of coffee, you come out, the socks are gone. Right. Someone came along that needed those socks and this soiled cherry 
also went on top of the mailbox and also was gone. Mm. Someone saw this thing and they were like, that's amazing. Even though like it was too disgusting to even have in our house. That's cherry had smoked a bong. That cherry had been through everything, <laughs> but away it went. And I have yet. No, that's not true. I, I finally found the limit of the stream one day where I put a, one of those chipboard guitar cases that was so old that it had come apart. Like every seam had come apart. It was basically just the, you had all the parts separated from one another. So you could make a new guitar case. You could lay it flat and, and cut around the shapes, but it no longer functioned as anything. All it was, was like fire starter. And I put that out by the mailbox figuring this will be gone in five minutes. Right. And it sat out there all day, all the next day, three days. And it was unprecedented. I'd never seen something that, that didn't find a home almost instantaneously. And this thing, like every single scavenger, all of the little, who are the little weebles in star Wars that live in the big, the, ja- um, the Jawas? The Jawas, yeah. right. Who live in the trapezoid. So they, you would expect them to come by in their... In their in trapezoid. Their trapezoid, yeah. And get it. They didn't. No, nobody. And finally, I was like, Jesus. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, world, that my garbage isn't good enough for you. And I crumpled it up and I threw it in the garbage. I was a little offended. You had to. You didn't have a choice. You're going to take eight pairs of used socks, but you're not going to take this crumpled up guitar case? Right. You know. But no, it turns out, no. Huh. That's a puzzler. Well. You know, anything, it's true. We have, uh, we have, even though we are in a suburban area, usually on the weekends, if you, uh, anything that you put down on the corner, there are, there are guys who drive around. Oh, the guys, The right. guys, and they, they have these, usually they're really, really beat up, old uh, pickup trucks. Sure. The junk men, the junk men, and they will drive around the, usually on the sides of the pickup trucks. They've extended the height of the pickup trucks with like wooden slatting, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like so that, so that it's very tall plywood walls. Yeah. And they just drive around and anything that's out there, they just, they'll just, assimilate it into the back of their truck and take it wherever, wherever it is that people like that go. Mm-hmm. And I remember we, we moved to the neighborhood that we were in now and it was, you know, we'd been there for a few months. This is like five or so years ago. And in Florida, you couldn't get to the end of your driveway before some kind of transient person would be, you know, meeting you halfway up your driveway. To, you, are you getting rid of that grill? I'll take it. <laughs> Here, though, this is a, you know, it's a nice neighborhood. My wife said, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone's going to take that here. I said, it'll be gone within the hour. Mm-hmm. She's like, no, I don't, I don't think it will be. I said, look, okay, you know what? If, if not, I'll bring it back up and we'll take it somewhere to donate it. I forget what it was. Mm-hmm. Within 10 minutes, it was gone. And I just don't understand it because like, we're not off like the main, like you would have to drive down the main road and then take a right and then a left and go back into the back corner of the still, like it didn't matter. And I, you know, it was not our neighbors taking it because we're like one of the smaller houses on our neighbor in our, on our street. Although you never know. Well, it's possible, but like we, they drive the nice cars, you know, and 
I don't know, like it was, it was just amazing. And so since then, every single time we, anything we put down there, it's gone. It just amazes me that there are people who are scouting this stuff out. They're waiting for it. And somehow something happens, they get word of it and they descend and then, then they, they get it out of there. Well, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you, Dan, there's a big underground, uh, economy. It's the underground economy of scrap. Yeah. And one time, uh, many years ago, I, I went into the underground economy of scrap. Mm -hmm. I was, I was still, I was still young enough that I was taking those jobs where people said like, Hey, will you clean up my, my back 40? And I was like, yeah, I'll clean up your back 40. Yeah. Right. Will you clean, clean up my back 40 for a hundred bucks. Yeah. I'll clean up your back 40 for a hundred bucks. And a friend of mine, uh, Peter cars and I had a pickup truck and we went to this sort of overgrown area and, and said, yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll pull all this stuff out and take it to the dump. And so we started, we started digging around in the grass and it was full of old pipe, big pipes, little pipes. Somebody had ripped uh, like a whole, all the conduit out of a, out of a building. There was brass and copper and, and rusty iron. And, and the more we dug in this grassy field, the more of this kind of crap we found just scrap metal, endless piles of it. And so we were like, Oh man, we agreed to do this job <laughs> for, it turns out a lot less money than this job was going to be. Cause you know, they, they sweep their hand across this area and you're like, well, there's nothing out there. And they're like, ah, oh, there's a bunch of stuff in the grass. <laughs> you end up like, Oh my God, like we're, we're working here all day in the hot sun. We fill up the back of this pickup truck and we're, we're crunching down the pipes. All that we, you know, we're, we're bending all the metal to try and get as much of it into the back of the pickup as we can. And by the end of the afternoon, we have this massive like ball of yarn mm -hmm. in the back of the truck, but it's all, it's all made of these different kinds of metals and, and it's weighing the, I mean, this is heavy stuff. It's weighing the back of the truck down. So all of a sudden we're the guys that are driving around with a truck. That's all, all bumping on its suspension <laughs> in the back. Right, right, right. Like the front end is way higher. And you know, it seems like, it seems like the mass of all that stuff should be, because it's pipe, right? So it's hollow and then it's mixed up with each other in a ball. It seems like it would be lighter than you might expect because yeah. there's so much air involved, but we had really crushed it down and just filled the back of this truck. And so it was a ton of stuff and we're driving along and it's like, what do we do with this? We're going to take it to the garbage. Like, how are we even going to get it out of this? Yeah, where truck? do you take something like that? And then Peter says, let's go to the scrapyard. And I was like, the scrapyard, of course. So we drive over to the scrapyard and you drive through and the scrapyard is an amazing place. I recommend that everybody go to their local scrapyard because you start to drive into it and, and the road is like a road through a fantastical otherworldly place mm -hmm. because there are mountains of things on either side. Like here's a mountain of all the stuff from inside of people's personal computers like just the guts of personal computers 
30 feet high. And then here's a mountain of all the wire that has been pulled out of everything. All the little red, yellow, green, white wire and the coils and coils of wire that go between things like everything you could pull out of a house or business is organized in these scrapyards in giant mountains. And it's all very colorful and you realize like, Oh, this is that material. And this is, I mean, it's like going back. It's super trainee in a way, like it's getting sorted on its way back to its constituent parts. <laughs> right. And somehow this wire, which is probably mostly copper, which has value is valuable enough that they're going to find a way to separate the copper from the plastic. Mm. I don't know how they're going to do that. I don't know where that ends up going to some specialized place where they are able to peel that plastic off of the copper. <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm not even sure that the copper could possibly be worth as much as the labor. Right. But they must so have to think that's very time consuming. Well, they must have a system. They couldn't possibly have people do it. They must have a thing where they heat it up, but I, but ugh, I don't know. I don't want to be around that. No. But anyway, then you get into this area where it's like, oh, it's all kinds of these kinds of parts. Mm -hmm. Parts is parts all around. It's like, this is that. And this is that. And we're, we're wending our way through this, this landscape and you can't see where the road is going. You're just like, you make a turn around this mountain and around the next turn is a kind of blind turn. Like what's around there. And you see all of the, the outsides of personal computers, the cases of them all stacked in a pile, mm -hmm. everything that you, you know, everything you could recycle. That's, that's not junk, but it's not really reusable. And we pull in finally to this clearing in the middle and there's one of those enormous cranes and on at the end of the, at the end of the wire is a huge magnet <laughs> and it's just kind of swinging there. And there are all these guys, all these Jawas and, and strange traders and people with one magnifying glass over the eye. And, you know, like, uh, it just feels like Thunderdome in there. Yeah. And a guy walks over and says, you know, drive your truck up on that scale. And so we drive up on the scale and he writes down the number and then he says, all right, drive it over here under the magnet. We drive under the magnet and I'm sitting in the driver's seat and here comes the magnet down, down, down until it's right over the junk and nothing happens. And then you hear them turn on the magnet. You know, it's an electromagnet. They hit the switch and the magnet goes and the entire load just goes wham. Oh man. And the truck actually bounced on its suspension because the weight was instantly lifted boom and the truck's like boing 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 oh man boing, as this whole load is just just grabbed by this magnet and and they lift it up and they swing it over and drop it in the the iron pile and uh and then there was some stuff left and the guy said that's aluminum 
we don't do aluminum here. You have to take it across the street to the aluminum guys because the aluminum guys or the aluminium guys, if you're listening from the former United Kingdom. Right. Uh, that's a separate business. The, you know, we don't touch that stuff. And I'm like, geez, I would, you know, and aluminum is valuable. And then we went over on the scale again. He weighed us, weighed us out and mm-hmm. gave us, a, gave us a big check, which we thought was going to be like, wow, we're going to, we're getting rich. Right. At, and at, at that very moment, here came into the scrapyard, this old car that only had two wheels on it. The two back wheels were still on it. The car had been completely stripped. It was being towed behind a pickup truck, like, like roped onto it. And there was, there were like two guys running alongside of it and maybe somebody in the back of the pickup truck and they were all smiling like, like they had found, they'd caught a big fish. Right, right, right. And looking around the yard, everybody there was like a scrapper. They were all the guys that are driving around town in the, in the trucks with the plywood sides. Mm -hmm. It's like a whole subculture of people and within their own subculture, they're having a blast laughing and like, look what I found. I found, I dug this up out of some grass <laughs> and uh, you know, and I know how much it's worth. It's worth 15 cents a pound or something. Right. right. And so this guy hands us this money. It wasn't a check. It was cash and it was exactly enough money for me and Peter to go get Mexican food. Oh man. Like it was nothing. We'd been paid fifty dollars each to clean up this yard, and then this guy gave us twenty two dollars or something yeah. like that. It was like, oh, that was. We thought when that magnet grabbed all that steel, we thought like, here it is. Here's the big payday, <laughs> twenty twenty two dollars or something. Right. So we learned a lot, but we also learned that being a scrapper is a lot of work for not or not a, not a, not a ton. You're look. I think when you're scrapping, you're taking all that stuff, but you're also looking for the little treasure, right? Or the, there are the small treasures like this lawnmower doesn't work anymore. Take it. And then you go and you put gas in it and it works fine. Yeah. And you sell it for 50 bucks to somebody. Right. The, like the diamond in the rough kind of situation. But that is also a ton of work. I think a lot of, a lot of scrapping is just, you hope that somebody puts out a box and it's full of gold bars. It's like those people who uh, who buy like the contents of an abandoned, mm-hmm. you know, little like warehouse shed type situation and they auction it off and they have no idea what it's, it could be empty. It could be filled with, you know, mail from 20 years ago or it, it could have like a priceless piano in it, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very enticed by it. I could see you getting into that, by that game, super enticed by it. But I also, oh, it would drive me crazy. It would drive me crazy to to buy a container and then open the container and find that within it is exactly what I thought was going to be in it, which is like pure garbage. Yeah. My, when, when my dad moved into his final apartment, my brothers and sister not my sister Susan, but my other brothers and sister, uh, they moved some of my dad's stuff into a storage space. And he he paid rent on this storage space for like three years. And he talked about his storage space all the time. Oh, I got to go manage my storage space. The people that run my storage space are giving me all this shit because blank. 
Um, you know, the storage space was this constant thorn in his side. And I finally, because, and they moved him into this thing when I was out of town on tour or something, and I didn't have any say in it. Finally, after three years about hearing about the storage space, I was like, let's go deal with this storage space. Right. And we went and cleaned out his storage space. And what my brother and sister, brothers and sister had done uh, was a little thing that we like to call kick the can down the road. Uh, because my dad's storage space was, there was not a single thing in there worth a dollar. Mm. But they'd filled it up. They'd filled it up with stuff that wasn't worth a dollar. And my dad was thinking about it all the time. What what am I going to do about this? And I got there and spent five minutes looking around. And I was like, what we're going to do with this is throw it all away now. Like, I can't believe you've been paying $60 a month to rent this thing. And it's just because nobody wanted, nobody wanted to deal with it. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that half of all storage spaces in the world, uh, that's, uh, that's the, the description of what's in there. Yeah. It's just like, uh, gamble. Yeah. Grandpa doesn't, grandpa doesn't want to clean out his basement and, and none of us feel authorized to throw it away. So we're going to move it into a storage space. Like I think the good stuff would probably be, Oh my God. Who puts good stuff in a storage space? That's the big question. Who right, puts why the, wouldn't it be in your in your home? Yeah, like if it's good stuff, why yeah, you'd keep it around. You wouldn't put your you wouldn't put your million dollar gun collection in a storage space. But I guess some people do. I always think you're gonna build on a storage space and you're gonna find 10, 50 gallon drums with dead bodies in them. Right. Drums full of lie. i don't know i i i need a storage space for what for all the for all the tarantulas in your garage no i have stuff from that i've collected over the last you know six years from you know trying a lot of different experiments here at, at five by five with recording different things. I've got a bunch of equipment. I've got lots of cables. I've got lots of uh, just stuff. Most of which, if not all of which really I plan to sell. Yeah. But there isn't room here. We, our office studio is very small. I don't know how big yours is, but it's probably similar. There's not really much storage space in it. And I'm actually, you know, none of the stuff that's here is stuff that I'm really using or going to be using. And there is not any room for it in my house at all. And in fact, uh, when we moved from our last office, which was bigger even than this one, I brought a bunch of stuff home and, uh, and it's in these boxes in the garage. My wife keeps saying, you know, get it out of here. But I can't take it back here because I have no place to put it here. And if anything... I'm going to be using getting a, a space that's better but smaller when I'm done with the lease here. So I need because I need to go through all of this stuff, and I've gone through it for the most part. But I need now I need to go in and start selling it. I Dan, to, you're downsizing. Is that what you're telling me? Oh yeah. I mean, I way downsized. Well, what are you downsizing for? I thought your empire was growing. 
it may be growing, but as far as the amount of space that I need for human beings and equipment, it's trimmed, trimmed all the fat. Well, you trimmed the fat. Yeah. I used, to, uh-huh. I used to use a lot of like help from interns and stuff like that. I used to get all the into, but they're more trouble than they're worth most of the time. Interns? Yeah. Interns are more trouble than they're worth. Usually. Right. I'm writing that down, Dan. I'm writing yeah. it down because I need to learn this stuff. I want an intern. I feel like I need an intern. I feel like you'd have maybe better luck. But, you know, I used to have a bunch of people and we had all these desks and we had all this, you know, different crap. You did? Yeah. And I'm like, what am, what am I doing all this for? I don't need, I can get by with way less space. And I did. Mm. And I mm. found a place that's, you know, right, really close to my kid's school. So I would drop him off and then I come over here. It was great. I always but, think of, a, I always think of a growing business as being characterized by more and more space until you have all the space. Well, I think you do. But I, in, you know, in today's modern world, you can do a lot with people who they work. They all want, everyone wants to work from their homes now. Oh, you're, you're, uh, you're offshoring. Yeah. Almost. Well, I mean, offshoring down the street and in Austin, but yeah, everyone wants to, they want to be in their own house. I don't care then, uh, but that means I don't need a desk for them. When they come here, they sit all sit all next to each other on the sofa with their laptops on their, you know, on their knees. Dan, would you describe yourself as an entrepreneur? Uh, I don't like that word, but I mean, I get, I guess. Now tell me what it is about the word entrepreneur that makes us all, uh, swell with hatred. I can tell you that why I think for people in, of our age group, that entrepreneur is, has a negative connotation. And, and who do you think, what, which age group thinks that entrepreneur is like, cool i would i would say people probably from younger ages up until maybe maybe if they're in their early 30s late 20s probably think entrepreneur is a kind of cool it may be a dated word but it it doesn't have the negative connotations that i think it has for us because i see for for people who are of our advanced age i think that it means can't hold down a job or tried a lot of different things and can't figure out what they like, or maybe even worse, did something that somehow made them some money that makes it so that they don't really need to work anymore. Mm, and now I hate those guys. I yeah, hate them. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but I think, you know, I, I think that the general definition of entrepreneur is like somebody who, who, runs their kind of their own business or who starts their own business or who starts lots of different businesses or, but there's something about it that imply that, that calls into my mind kind of a certain sketchiness, um, <laughs> a, a someone who is, I don't know. There's that connotation of like, well, I'm an entrepreneur. Oh, really? What are you doing? Well, I've got my hands in a couple different things right now. Experiment, yeah, right. Experimenting with a couple different ideas. And, um, you know, like this is the kind of person who doesn't really, they just don't want to work. So they become an entrepreneur. And now I think entrepreneur is kind of thought of as like, oh, well, you're like, you used to have a startup. So you're an entrepreneur. You're here out there. You're like, you're entrepreneurial. You're getting, you're, you're doing a, a startup. Like, I think that's what, the the young folk think of it 
now. Yeah, you're entrepreneuring the shit out of some shit. <laughs> right. No. <laughs> Am I no. right about that, do you think? Or I, you, you said it perfectly when you used the word sketchy. Mm. There's something sketchy about the word entrepreneur that I don't know exactly why it is, but, but there, you know what it, what it, what it feels like is somebody who has family money. That's not acknowledging they have oh, family. Right, money. right, right. Like, well, my parents gave me a little bit of a, the head start. Well, oh, yeah, really? my, yeah, they put a couple million in my, or, or like <laughs> my play account. I've got a lot of investors. Oh, who are your investors? Oh, just, you know, a lot of investors. Who are your investors? My dad, my mom, my uncle. Oh, you've got a lot of investors. You've got a lot. It's it's exactly that, right? That like the type of people that would call their mom their manager, <laughs> right? Or would say that they had a lot of investors when it's just that their dad gave them the money to start a company. Like that's what it feels like when somebody says entrepreneur. Yeah, there was a kid in the during the height of the grunge years, and I'm well, I'm talking about early grunge. 1990 through 93, there was a kid who arrived in Seattle. I never, I never met him or even stood close to him, Uh but he would drive around Seattle in this Porsche 944. Oh yes. Which was the least grunge car you could that's what the I mean, one my friend i was telling you about that he had that was that he had pulled out of a lake or something yeah the that's 944. the one the 944 the 944 which was the which was the the peak 1985 car but it never represented i mean the whole grunge self-identity <laughs> I don't know how that who he was saying that was grunge well, no, 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 no. So here, here we are in this town, all the, everybody who's between the ages of, of 17 and 27 in Seattle at that moment was trying to represent about themselves some kind of grunginess. And in most cases, what that meant was you didn't own a car. You know, we all just slept around. Because even owning a car wasn't very grunge. It was too, you know, like, oh, Mr. Big Shot's got a car. But here comes this kid, and he was obviously from out of town. And he was obviously someone, he was one of those early adopters who had been sitting in his somewhere. And he opened a magazine article, and it said, Seattle is the young people place. And he just got in his car and didn't even, I don't think, have to throw his luggage in the car it, because he just, you know, he just showed up and rented a nice apartment and was like, I'm a young person and now I'm at the center of the scene. And so here he is driving this 944 around and it was conspicuous because he was, he was dressed grunge. Yeah. But he's in this crazy car. Well, after about a year of it, all of a sudden... The 944 had had its paint stripped off with a sanding disc. It was obvious that the sanding disc had been attached to an electric drill, Uh and the sanding disc had been applied to the red paint of the 944, and it had probably taken him an entire day to do, but he stripped off all the paint, and now the 944 was just bare metal with those circular scrapes of a of a sanding disc and it had probably been 
really the wrong gauge of sandpaper. And of course, immediately the car started to rust because it was exposed metal. The 944s were not made of aluminum. <laughs> and so now he's driving around town in a 944 like rusted. rusted, completely the color of rust, uh, still visible all of the all of the sanding marks. Right. And it was just like, wow. There's a version of grunge that um that only has one person in it, right. <laughs> uh, which is you. Right. And that's pretty amazing uh, that you've, you, you, you get, you get it. Not at all, but here you are. And maybe, you know, with any luck, he had actually fallen on hard times. Maybe he had even in his pursuit of the fashion of grunge. Maybe he had even tried heroin and then become a, a, a junkie. Man. And now he's, he, he's driving around with no judgment anymore. Um, he didn't have any judgment to begin with, but now he really doesn't have any. And this like sanding of his car was the first step on the long, slow decline where eventually he was going to sell the car for 500 bucks and then he'd really be grunge, you know, <laughs> he'd be living in a flop house. Who knows? There are plenty of people that actually went that distance in order to, in order to achieve like true dissolution. But that guy, <laughs> when I think entrepreneur, <laughs> that's who I, you think of. I right? always think of that guy. Like, I think, I think the younger generation is thinking of like, you know, Zuckerberg or something like that. Zuckerberg, oh, he's an entrepreneur. Like, he had an idea. He did it in his dorm room. He built it. And now it's the biggest company in the world. You know, like, oh, Steve Jobs is an entrepreneur. I don't think of really either of them. No. As being that, entrepreneurs. I think of Zuckerberg as being a college dropout. <laughs> well, you have some strong opinions about going to college, according to your Twitter. Yeah, I don't think people should go to college anymore. I, 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 my, my feeling about college has evolved over the course of many years, and I think that you should, you should not go to college unless you really want to study Chaucer. I mean, if you want to truly pursue the liberal arts in their most esoteric, absolutely go to college. But otherwise, fight, fight, fight this insane idea that you have to go to college in order to be a success in the world. It's absolutely not true. No, no computer person should go to college because doing computer work is not, you do not need to go to college. You need to study computer work, which you can do at a cafe. Um, teach yourself how to program, teach yourself how to code, teach yourself how to, you know, you can teach yourself all that stuff but faster and better. Maybe if you're going to be an engineer, you should probably go to call. Yeah, you could go to a trade school. You go engineering. You could go to a trade school for that. There should be engineering trade schools. There should be architecture trade schools. I mean, college should just be a place where you go and argue with people about theories of history, I think. And everything else should be just sort of, I mean, so much of what people learn at Harvard could be you could learn it as well or better at a community college. 
it's just a crazy, it's just a crazy class game. And I think we should dismantle the whole thing. Hmm. And the way to do it is just to stop buying into it. Stop telling your kids they have to go to college. Stop feeling like you have to go to college or that you need a college degree to do anything because we've arrived at this place where you need a college degree to do everything. You can't be a cop without one. You can't get a job as a clerk. You can't get a job as a secretary. You can't. I mean, the only place you can work is at Midas mufflers or as a carpenter. So you're not, you're not rejecting the individual choice to maybe not go to school. You're saying college should be eliminated except with certain very limited exceptions to that across the board. Uh, the the whole idea, I mean, I, w- the, the, I was following the logic of Bernie Sanders, like free higher education for everyone mm-hmm. kind of platform, which, you know, people rally behind and get excited by because they think it's going to level the playing field. It's going to eliminate the, um, the like, inequitable access to higher education because in order to get a good education, you need to have all this money. And so the way to level the playing field is to, is to provide those resources to everybody. But the problem is then they just use different criteria to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's not like everybody suddenly gets to go to Harvard for free. They're just end up, it ends up just being sort of a government teat that all the colleges are sucking off of all of a sudden, but the, but it's, it's just going to get more competitive. And what we're going to end up with is everybody's going to college at which point, what the hell? Like you're not, it's, it isn't necessary to go to college in order to learn. And what we should be doing is all learning. We should be learning all the time. College is the least efficient way to do that. There are so many better ways to get education. And somebody wrote me on Twitter in response to my thing. They were like, yeah, let's take, um, let's take the $150,000 and four years of your life that you spend going to college and just imagine what you could do with $150,000 and four years of your life. That's like, like what syndrome says, you know, when everyone's super, no one is right. Right. Well, and, and, what are we doing there? Everybody's taking intro to psych. I mean, just throw it out and do what you want to do. And if you don't know what you want to do, do what my mom used to say, which is go park cars at a resort somewhere, go park cars at a resort and have like affairs with people until something strikes your fancy. But like, Going straight into college, what a waste. What a waste of college. What a waste of your youth. And if you can, you know, if you can con your folks out of $150,000 to go to a good school, uh, you could probably, with a little extra effort, con them out of giving you that money to go start a espresso stand in Crete. You know, like, mom, dad, I'm going to start an espresso stand in Crete. And they're like, that sounds crazy. I know, right? Put $150,000 into it and maybe I'll make $20,000 a year uh-huh. at my espresso standing Crete or what? I mean, Jesus, like if, if you just think about it in terms of the allocation of these resources to create this end result, what we have right now is the end result is not an educated person interested in the world. It's just the piece of paper. It's just the piece of paper, which 
All the piece of paper says is I can conform to a set of arbitrary rules for four years. Therefore, I will be a good uh, employee. It, you know, if, if you're looking at somebody's resume and they don't have a college degree, you just throw it in a, in the garbage can because it's, it's just understood that they need one. But if they have one, you don't ask them another thing about their college experience. How did you like college? What did you do there? Did you study a lot or did you not, you know, like getting good grades isn't hard. So all you have to do is pass that, get over that bar and all the people that are geniuses that didn't, that don't have college degrees, you just throw their resumes on the fire and you hire these people that are like, yeah, I went to college right out of high school and I did what was asked of me. And now here I am. Give me a job. It's like, hmm, the, the degree is meaningless. Except but don't you as feel, a, don't you feel though that by just by going through college mm-hmm. that you are somehow, and I'm, I'm more playing devil's advocate than I am advocating for college, but don't you feel that that at least it is in, in some way establishes kind of a, a baseline where you can say, well, the degree that they got, unless it's a, like you're saying, like a really specialized degree or something like that, like you're going, you know, you do like a pre-law degree so that you can then study law and become a lawyer, the for most, example. The most worthless degree. Well. After a psychology degree. If you're, you know, if you're doing something like that where you're on some kind of a track, I'm, I'm taking that aside, pretty much any arts degree. Are you saying what? then that, that when they come out of that, that that doesn't say to a potential employer... I I at least was able to do this four years and get passing grades. You're yeah. saying the value of that doesn't doesn't carry as much as it used to or at all. Well, what used to be true was that high school was the baseline. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people didn't graduate from high school. And, uh, you know, the famous line of like, I'm the first person in my family to graduate from high school. That used to be a big deal. Not that long ago. High school was hard and people had to, you know, people often had to go to work to support their families or help support their families. And so going, going to high school and graduating was it's in itself an accomplishment. Uh, and then at 18 years old, it was like, I have passed the baseline. I am now ready to work at a wide variety of jobs, anything in manufacturing, anything. I mean, you know, uh, one generation before that, you just go apprentice with a lawyer and then you were a lawyer. Right. You know, you didn't have to even go to college for that. But then, you know, the combination of things, one of which was the, the, like the massive increase in overall wealth where everybody now, even even in Amer- even the poor in America, with the you know, with the exception of the desperately poor, and even in a way they, everybody has access now to clean food for the most part. Right. You know, like nobody is, no families really are sitting out at their on their hard scrabble farm and starving to death because of the locusts <laughs> anymore. Right. Right. There are so many resources that keep people up above the bubble of like starvation, mm-hmm. which wasn't true. So we, which wasn't true even a generation ago. 
So now we have a, we have a, a society which even talking about the fact that the middle class is, is plummeting relative to the, to the oligarchic class. The fact is that even if you're eating Cheetos and Diet Pepsi, you are eating and there's, you know, you're, you're able to get nutrition, even the poorest, right? But, but really there's this vast, vast middle class that, that where, where kids don't have to go to work at 18. And so there's this, there's this notion of like, well, they've got to get a good job and the manufacturing's gone now. So in order to get a good job, which is some white collar, what we used to call a white collar job, something where you're sitting in an office and typing in a machine. Mm-hmm. We have this notion that that is a thing that you need a college degree to accomplish. And so whatever the baseline used to be, which is, you know, did you, can you read? <laughs> did you go, uh, did you make it through high school? So you presumably have some familiarity with like, ideas. Well, good. Come on and learn this job. Now we have this thing where, where none of the jobs really are that much harder. Sit at a computer and, and uh, do coding. Like, yeah, that you can figure that out. That's a job you learn. Any reasonable and reasonably intelligent person can learn it. And then the truly great people at it practice it as an art form, which in a way is something you can't learn. It's something that you intuit. And the only way you can know that is to apprentice and to feel your, or your, you know, you sit at a computer and you just, you understand it, you intuit it and you fly. But what job, Dan, other than, other than orthopedic surgeon, and maybe even that, what job could you not learn by shadowing somebody? What job did your, did your college make you better at your job or did your college was your college just sort of a time to like a time to pursue more socialization, more goofing around with your friends, more social drinking. See, I'm the wrong person to ask because my college experience was fairly academic. I didn't, uh, I didn't party a lot. Mm-hmm. I did have a group of good friends, small group of friends. And what you studied computer science? No, a tech writing English degree. Oh. And I I remember a lot of what I learned and yes, I did have to like read Chaucer and that kind of stuff that I really didn't enjoy. But I I actually did a lot of what you're talking about in that when I was learning like the business of tech writing, like what really is involved in that, the way that we really the way that we really did that was by uh like doing writing projects you know like they would send us to a local company that needed like a policy and procedures guide or a software manual written or something and we would kind of write it and i'm sure they chucked it in the trash as soon as we (laughs) left but Mm -hmm. you know but like it was a really good learning experience and we'd bring it back and we'd do like peer critiques and the teachers would tell us the things that we could have done better and it was very much what you're describing we did it within a classroom setting Mm -hmm. but But it was really an apprenticeship it was an apprenticeship if you look at it like that and i've never really thought it of it that way until you described it that way. Um, but I mean, all, I think all valuable learning comes through apprenticeship unless you are, unless you're in a completely theoretical context where there where is, I learned, I mean, where I learned computer programming and computer science 
was predominantly in my own time reading books. And then once I graduated from the people that were around me who were software developers who were much better than me, and they taught me uh, they taught me, you know, what, what they knew, or I would come and I would ask them questions and they'd say, Oh, right. You're talking about this. And I would, I would learn from them and then I would go and write some code, you know? Yeah. I mean, famously Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, the two richest Americans, both dropped out of school, dropped out of the same school. Um, and getting into that school was the test that they felt like they had to pass, uh, to get accepted there was the proof. And then beyond that, they were like, get me out of here. Um, I think high school should be harder. I think fewer people should graduate from high school and then colleges should be like a completely utterly other thing. And I say that as somebody who spent years and years and years in college and wandering around a college where you just go, why are you here? There's no reason for you to be here. Go do the thing that you want to do. You don't need to. But now, I mean, I think there is a value to it, but I can't put my finger on what it is. And maybe it's because I'm so entrenched in it. I mean, my my mom was a lifelong college teacher. Yep. Uh, My dad spent his whole career working at a university. My aunt was a director of the library at a university. Uh, I mean, like my grandmother was a teacher. Think about how much more your mom would have enjoyed her job if instead of 40 to 400 kids in her class, 80% of whom were looking at their fingernails through all the lectures, if she just had 30 kids who were passionate about what she was teaching. I mean, she would enjoy her job. It would be better. And the 30 kids would get a better education. Is it the institute, the the way the institution is set up or that you question the value of? No, the institution has has been perverted by the by the social notion every person that argues on behalf of college what it ends up being an argument for is that without a college degree in our current system you won't be able to get a job and that is like a terrible rationalization it's like yeah right within our current system you need to have this feather in order to go get your job but the education itself is irrelevant it's just a it's just a series of hoops and you jump through them and that proves what? I mean, it doesn't right, because, prove. Because the, it, college is no longer, I think, as it originally was, a place to go to learn from, from people who themselves were very learned, who were, who were out there in the world doing these great things, who then came to this institution of learning to share what they knew with people who wanted to do that who were passionate about it who were there because they i mean like uh like wouldn't it have been nice if you wanted to get into like like trial law to like work with alan dershowitz while he's trying these famous big cases you know what i mean like that seems like a cool learning experience if that's the kind of thing that you're into but again looking at it through the through the way you painted it like that's an apprenticeship it really is an apprenticeship, but apprenticeships are, are, are gone. Well, they're what, gone. What, what I think of as a college is an, an experience that is multidisciplinary. This is what a real, the real value of a college is that you go and are exposed to, uh, like flexible minds across a wide variety. So it's teaching you to be, a it's teaching you to be a thinker. 
And those are the people that we wish we had in the state department so that they, so that when we encounter a situation where it's like, well, the Sunnis and the Shiites are having this disagreement and we're not sure what the solution is that we don't turn to army generals and we don't turn to elected officials. We turn to people who work in that field, who've studied a broad discipline. So they understand the cultures that are in play, but they also understand the history of uh, not just the cultures, but the history of negotiation throughout the ages. What, you know, we, we understand that, the British went into Afghanistan and lost. The Russians went into Afghanistan and lost. So what makes us think that we can go into Afghanistan and not lose? What has changed? Are we better? Are they different? It turns out neither thing. And we go into Afghanistan and lose. And so there's nobody, there's nobody at the controls or even whispering into the ears of the people at the controls who bring that that vast knowledge. And the fact of the matter is that everybody's got a college degree. So you say, well, this person's got a college degree in precisely in Sunni Shiite culture or in Pashtun culture. And, uh, and we should value their opinion. And it's like, well, you know what? 700 people applying for this job have college degrees in something that, that vaguely apply to this. So we no longer privilege the experience of, you know, or privilege the knowledge because we've, you know, and now you have to have a PhD in the thing, which means that now you have spent an additional eight to 10 years of your life right. stuck in this grinder. And so what we end up doing is college is full of people like getting business degrees. What the, you know, you could read one book and go out and start a business. Okay. But, but around this country, Anywhere you go to get that kind of job, if if somebody walked in and said, "Well, what do you know about business?" Well, I've read I've read some really good books and I absorbed all the knowledge and I'm ready to do this. They would laugh at you. Well, that's exactly the that's exactly the criteria that I think is. Well, is, how do you fix that? Yeah. How do you fix that? I mean, partly you can't fix it until you start until there's some kind of resistance movement. You know, uh, there's some sort of like. That the, you go around the country and you say the valedictorian of every school in the country, join me in my march to freedom and refuse to apply to college. You know, like it has to be, it's the, it's the exact opposite. Even though I admire the Bernie Sanders platform of like everyone to college for free. Right. I think there should be the, I think the actual platform should be smart people protest college by not only not you know not applying but but like collectively agreeing that if you want to go to college wait until you're 22 22 should be the the line and if you graduate from high school at 18 that four years is maybe somewhat like it's mandated there has to be that you have to be 22 to apply and so within that four years, if you don't find anything else that turns your crank, if you're not engaged in the world already and you're like, no, I really want to study Pashtun culture, mm -hmm. then by the time you're 22, you should know that and you should join. But now, there are a lot of a lot of other countries encourage people to 
go and spend a few years finding themselves after they get out of high school before they go to college. You're suggesting that. Well, and in a, in a way, it's national service, right? I've said this for a long time. There ought to be a system where everyone that everyone at 18 years old either goes into the army or into the the conservation corps or work for the national parks or work for us aid or the peace corps or you know there are a thousand organizations that could benefit from an benefit from 18 year olds who are sort of like this is part of being an american you go spend two years doing this and then you have two years before you can you can enter a university and i think once that was mandated there would I mean, businesses in general across the country would immediately recognize that they had to change their methodology and they would say, well, there are all these 18 to 22 year olds who are looking for jobs and none of them have college degrees. So that's not how we measure them. Mm -hmm. So we go back to measuring them based on maybe their high school grades or we find a new way to hire people. And in most cases, you walk in and you answer a few questions and you seem bright eyed and bushy tailed and you know, that was how you got a job before. And that is how you get a job. Now you sit, if you want a computer programming job, you sit down and you show them that you can, you know, you can animate an orb, um, or whatever, but like the actual work that we are accomplishing as a human culture is not that hard, right? We are not at a level now where everyone in America is doing like, particle physics Mm. and we should stop acting like it and realize that the work we're doing is just, you know, like nobody is, nobody is manufacturing steel parts like they were 50 years ago, but that was actually pretty hard work and you had to like know what you were doing and the work we're doing now because you wear a, because you get to wear your Jonathan Colton shirt to work and you think you're a big shot because you're, you programmed the code for Twitter. Uh, it's not any harder. It's not any harder than manufacturing carburetors. And, and it's this, like everybody gets an award. Everybody gets a parade culture. We're not any smarter than our grandparents were. And we're not, I mean, they, they're the ones that put a man on the moon. They're the ones that invented the airplane. The work we're doing is at best at the same sort of, level of accomplishment at best virtual reality versus or augmented reality versus inventing the Lockheed constellation. Like I'll put them up against each other any day of the week, which, you know, the Saturn five rocket versus coding angry birds. Like (laughs) which one required more education and more Intel raw intelligence and technical skill and i'll bet you nine tenths of the people that actually built the saturn five didn't have college degrees probably and the people that designed it you know yeah had studied engineering um and a lot of it was just like get your slide rules out you know yeah so i mean it's a if if i were running for president which i'm not not yet not gonna well but like got to be 22 to go to college from 18 to 20. You work in national service and there are, there are 25 
things you can do. So if you're a peacenik, you can go work in a peacenik place. And if you want to build houses for the homeless, you can do that. And if you want to go into the army, you can do that. All of those things count against your two year, your two year debt to the, to America. And then after that, you got two years where you've had that organizational experience. You've had that living in a dorm with other young people doing good work, not just spinning your wheels with garbage, but, you know, doing good work, either physical work or intellectual work or, you know, work that, that compels you. And then after that next two years where you're parking cars and shagging people in uh, hotels, or maybe you continue in the, on the path of your national service, then the ones that want to go to college go. Mm-hmm. That's my, that's my theory, Dan. That's my, I like it. Proposal. You like it, but, but I just don't see how, honestly, if I could go back in time, knowing what I know now to my 20 year old self graduating high school. When I you graduated from high school at 20. Yeah. Cause I'm an October. Oh yeah. Birthday. Yeah, yeah. Smart, smart. I think that that's smarter. I wish, though, that I had taken some time, not time off. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say it like that because it's not time off. off, Right. Right. But if I had taken some time to kind of figure things out, I would have definitely chosen, made some different choices. But, but my issue was I, I was very cognizant of the fact that the kinds of things that I wanted to do did require a degree, whether they required the degree or whether they just required a degree. You know what I'm saying? I do. Uh, it was very aware that those things require, I would need to show up with a college diploma. It didn't matter if it was in English. I picked English because As a it, protest vote. No, because it was so easy. Oh, my my mom is a college English professor. I was, I, I spoke very early. I read very early and I was a very, very, very good writer. There's a lot of things that I'm not very good at at all. Writing is one of the few things I'm I'm fairly good at, or I used to be when I did it all the time. And I knew that I could get through college with the minimal amount of effort and work if I picked the thing that I was already very, very good at. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I could pretty much ace my English classes, that is all of my classes in my major, that I could pretty much ace them with almost no work because it came so easily to me. And I picked the laziest way and quickest way to get through college. And I was doing a computer science. I was going to do a double major, computer science. And this is back when computer science was like modula and C. And... I found that most of the kids that were in classes with me, they didn't know how to, I'm not kidding. They weren't competent in like managing the Unix operating system. They didn't <clears throat> understand hardware components. They didn't Ye even in some cases know how to turn the computer terminal on oh, or damn. boot a Unix system. All the stuff that to me was like super, super basic stuff going into Sure, college. they should have gone right into the Soylent Green machines. You know? But I'll tell you what, Dummies. I thought that computer science was like, I'm going to write some cool code. Because like in, in, uh, in, in high school, 
I had learned, you know, I had taken like a class in, um, in Turbo Pascal because I'd already known basic and some other things. Mm, Turbo Pascal. Turbo Pascal was. Oh, you're giving me a chubby. It was great. I love Turbo Pascal. And so I was already kind of familiar with all of that stuff. And so when I got into college, I mean, I, I had a side business building PCs for people. So like I knew all that stuff, like that was the easy stuff. I thought we were going to learn that. I thought that was going to be easy, but it was all, I mean, it was all like deep theory. And like most of the kids, I remember like half the kids in my class were like specializing in like, they wanted to like code antennas and do robot vision. And like, well, I'm in the wrong place here. Plus this is really hard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I got out of there mm-hmm. and I finished and just did a, you know, an English major and it was easy. Mm-hmm. And I got A's in all my classes in my major because it was so easy. And I got out there and I, I have never have yet to get paid for doing any kind of writing. Mm. Uh, I mean, not counting like an article here or there or whatever. I immediately went and got a job in, uh, in software and IT and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And my, my credentials were I understood it. That was my credentials. Nobody has to find a degree in computer science because in the early, very early nineties, no one had a degree in computer science. They were working in a, you know, they were building a telescope or a space telescope if that's what they wanted to do. You know, like they, no one had, no one was walking around with like a degree in like, I know how to make a website. Mm -hmm. Like that was unheard of. And I remember I had been working for maybe, Uh, let's say six or seven years when I started to see people coming, coming up that like were applying for jobs I was working who had, they had computer science degrees. And that actually meant something for the industry that we were in. It didn't mean that they were studying, trying to build, you know, antenna software, but it meant that they were actually like, they understood how to build websites or they understood how to write code, real code that we would actually use. And so that really changed. But I never got paid uh, to do what I got my major in. And most of the people that I know that are our age that are in computers don't have degrees in computer science either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I find a lot of people do or they're completely self-taught. And when it mm-hmm. comes to computers, I was completely self-taught with the exception of that one class that I had in high school. Mm-hmm. And I took that because the other option was typing and I didn't want to have to learn how to touch type. I was too lazy to learn how to touch type. I could take computers. That's easy. I know that. You can see a pattern here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did later learn to touch type. How? On my own. Mm-hmm. Not in a class. Not in a class like everyone else. But I didn't learn well in classes. I learned well from talking to people, from listening to them, from learning what they do, and from uh, predominantly from reading. But I don't think, John, that either of us are typical in that way. And I think there are a lot of people who really, really do need an institution, however bogus you may think it is, and I tend to agree with you, that they do need that. And that for most normals, they need that. And that most people who are in hiring roles and in managerial roles, those people it gives them a framework for how to understand their potential employee. Because if somebody like us walks in there, they're going to be like, I don't know what to make of this person. They, they, they are not on the same track that I was on. They don't fit into the framework that I fit into. Therefore they will not be a good match for the team that we're putting together here. Mm -hmm. 
don't know. Uh, well, by that description, college is fulfilling a very different role than, than we want it to fill, right? Well, then it, then it, then it ever did. I mean, what, what you're saying is that it's a warehouse for people that need special handholding and it's, and it makes, uh, HR people's jobs easier. And I feel like you could have that. I mean, I, th- I think that normal people do not need that much handholding, frankly. Um, and they can, I mean, you just, in, in, in a lot of applications in the, in the corporate world, you need a problem solved and you need to throw bodies at it. Mm-hmm. And you just have the, the brute force thing, right? We have to, we have to, handle all these tickets. We get a thousand tickets a day. People are having problems with our software because we rushed it into, we rushed the beta product out into the world. Right. And now people are complaining. We need a thousand people that, uh, th- to handle these tickets and we can offshore it or we can put together a call center. Every one of these people has got to have a college degree because, uh, that's how we know that they're, that they're not going to steal the creamer out of the <laughs> break room. Yeah. Um, and in a way it's that it, it, the college degree just functions as that. Like, can we trust this person with the code to get into the elevator? Mm-hmm. If they don't have a college degree, right, how do we, we know? How do we know we'll be able to No, you're absolutely right. How do we know that, that, uh, that their social security number lines up with their birthday? But that is, you know, that is the training and the and that bar that a lot no, of people it's use. No, not, it has nothing to do with the training. You could, you know, you just do a better job of background checks or whatever. Like the the amount of money and time that is wasted. I agree with that. To accomplish these these simple tasks, which is just like, is this is this person who they say they are? Are they going to steal the creamer? And can they handle the 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 complaints that are coming in mm-hmm. about our product? Uh, even with a college degree, you have to go through the training. It's not like the, it's not like you come in pre-equipped to know what they're, to know what all these tickets are angry about. Like so much of the work that gets done in America is not imaginative and that's not a slight, but it, it isn't, it doesn't require that you be a genius. You don't sit there and, and code from the, from that place in your mind. That's like, that's, painting with with the colors you invented it's mm, just like here's the job i don't know about that i don't know about that oh really you think that most computer programmers are like swashbuckling uh artists i no, they're, they're I, given a job like here we need you to fix this bug or you need to code around this program i think and, that i i think that writing code is as creative as writing words and writing all code because there are a lot of people writing words that are just writing garbage words that that's, need to get written. That's true. And I think there's also garbage code that has to get written too. But I think that the vast majority of it, well, I mean, do you, if you read the Delta airlines in flight magazine, <laughs> um, or if you read essentially like if you read the, uh, writing on the, on the box that's explaining how to use your new coffee maker. Yes. Or if you open up the Filson catalog and read the descriptions of the products, all those are writing jobs. 
Uh, but what they are is like, here are, I mean, you know how commas work and we need to describe this new backpack. Go. Yeah. Like it's not imaginative. Maybe the best stuff is maybe if you're reading the Jay Peterman catalog, <laughs> you feel like, wow, this guy's really got a lot of flair. Well, I would say just, just as in, in the fact that, that a lot of writing, as you're saying, a lot of writing is fairly mundane and, and task oriented and, and that Most. type of thing. Most. I think there's a lot of code that's that way, but I think that there's also the potential for people to be very creative in their writing. I yeah, think not, there's also I, the potential I, for people to be creative in. I, I'm you'd not be slagging off code. Dan. I have I looked. Mean, well, no, I, I have looked at a lot of code, and I have found in in ancient code that didn't have to be special or elegant or funny. I have found a lot of humor in it. I have found you know, jokes that only other programmers would understand embedded in the code because the person was bored because the person had to write crummy code to do something boring, but they did it in an interesting way that was a joke to them and would be a joke to other developers who might five years yeah, later see that. Code. My mom was one of those coders yeah, and she didn't, she had a degree in English and she wrote the, she wrote the code that still underpins the entire criminal justice system in King County, right? Wow. And, uh, <laughs> it, like code that was written in, in machine language and, you know, was in, and was inventing it, not just, yeah, right, not right, just right. writing in it, but inventing it and describes a, a thing where they were never bored because they weren't just churning out yeah. boring code to solve boring problems. They were like inventing a language, but it's the and and I would not describe my mother as an artist, and neither would she. But she was given a problem to solve, and she used her brain to solve it. Right, and that I right, think right. is what most people can do. And to to insert the idea of college in between a normal person who wants to use their brain in a challenging way, right, and problems that need to be solved that are not at the level of Higgs boson. Uh -huh. <laughs> most people can solve those problems and most people are, have good brains that are capable of doing that work. But to, but what we've done is insert college in between there as some kind of, it isn't just a screen. It doesn't even function as a screen anymore because it doesn't keep anyone out, right? It isn't a filter. Mm -hmm. College just is this intermediary step that, uh, legitimizes people who are already legitimate because if you are, if you want to get through college, you can, there is no, you know, there's no giant mass of people that want to get into the white collar workforce, but just can't make it through college or into college. You know, you can always find a path. If you don't get into the college you want, you can get into the next college down. And if you want to go all the way down to Trump university, you can, find a college that you can graduate from and 99% of HR people don't even, they don't know the difference between a college in Grenada mm -hmm. and a college in Boston or they don't care, you know? So this, so college has figured out a way and we are all complicit in it to insert itself in there. And it's basically functionless. You know, it's just skimming the skimming the money and the time off of people. And in the, and in the that echelon that's truly getting 
everything they can out of college. Yeah. I know this doesn't apply, but that is, in, that is so much a minority of the people that are there. And so much of the work that happens in college can be done independently or as part of a, as part of an apprenticeship. Right. And that's all I'm saying. In addition to my, uh, my sweeping plan to reform the way the United States functions. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in, which in, is a, you know, a culture of volunteerism and the now impressed volunteerism, right? Where you don't get to volunteer. You just get to choose, get to choose which of the 20 things you do. And probably one of them is like writing catalogs. That's one of the forms of public service. We need catalog writers. <laughs> 